Please follow along as I read. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Father, your word is truth. Father, your word is inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible, Father. We can rely on it. It is sufficient for all our needs. Father, bless us now as we hear your word. I pray for words of truth, Father, words of encouragement, words of exhortation. In Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. We all know what a promise is. We've made promises. We made promises to do things, to be somewhere, to help somebody. And any time that we have a promise, any time that anyone makes a promise, we tend to evaluate those promises. We want to know what's being said. And we look at it, a promise, from a number of different angles. One of those is the authority. Does this person who's making the promise have the ability or have the, I'm sorry, have the authority, is he able to make that promise? Does he have the ability to carry it out? He can make the promise, but can he really fulfill it? And then there's the activity, what I call the what's being promised. If we were to write a police report on this, we'd look at the who, the how, and the what. Let's give an example. We have a light bulb out in the closet in my house, and I promise my wife I will change that light bulb. Now, I have the authority to have that light bulb changed. It's my house. If Pastor Ron said, I'll go change the light bulb, he doesn't have the authority to walk into my house, into my closet, and change the light bulb. Only I have the authority to do that. I can grant that to somebody else, but I have the authority to authorize that light bulb be changed. It's not enough that I authorize it. I have to have the ability to change the light bulb. I have to climb up on the ladder, and I have to be able to unscrew the bulb and put the new one in. And we may say that's a simple task, but if you know anything about me, that's not so simple. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, Scott had to explain how I tripped off my front door and sprained my ankle. Um, as I said before, see these? These are all thumbs, and they're all left thumbs. So you have to have the ability to carry out that promise, or the promise has no merit. And then there's the activity. What actually am I promising? I'm promising to change the light bulb. I'm not promising to do something else. It's the, the promise involves the light bulb. So I want to look at a verse here that talks about a promise. And we're going to focus in on 1 John 2, 
25. Let me read that again for you. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And I want to apply the same evaluation, the authority, the ability, and the activity, the who, the how, and the what, to this verse. Now, in the past three weeks, we've been hearing and answering the question, who is Jesus? Three weeks ago, I spoke about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants of God. Pastor Scott, speaking largely from Revelation, told us that Jesus is the sovereign king. He's preeminent. He's the judge and the savior, the lion and the lamb. And then last week, speaking from Colossians, Pastor Ron told us and showed us that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of salvation. And this was the last week we were gonna do this. And, and I know that Pastor Ted was supposed to preach to you, but he's been running around putting out fires. And by that, I mean that literally, he's been putting out fires. He's a fire battalion chief has been deployed to Northern California a number of times. So uh, I ask that you keep him and keep the firefighters in prayer while he's out doing this, because it's a dangerous job. So I'm pinch hitting here this morning, and I wanna try and tie all this together. And I wanna answer the question of who Jesus is by examining this promise in 1 John. Well, let's look at some background information on this passage. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, just like the Gospel of John and Revelation, were all written by the Apostle John. All three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were written about 90 to 95 AD. Revelation, the last book, was written about 95 to 96 AD, so it gives you kind of a perspective here. It was very close to when Revelation was written. John wrote 1 John to bring Christians back to the basics. It was a response to one of the heresies floating around at the time called Gnosticism. Now generally, Gnosticism holds a belief that matter is evil, that's the flesh, and spirit is good. And Gnosticism denied that Jesus had actually came in the flesh. They said that his spirit had come upon Jesus at his baptism and then departed before his crucifixion. There was, there was not an understanding that Christ was fully man and fully God. If he wasn't fully man, he could not have died on the cross and paid for our sins. If he was not fully God, he couldn't have lived a perfect life and thereby qualified to do this. He's fully God and fully man. But Gnosticism denied this and it's long been regarded as a heresy right back to the, the very first years of the church. Now in the greater context of, 18, of 2, 18 through 27, we find tucked away in here, 1 John 2, 25. John is written to warn of deceptions and he tells us to abide in what we heard from the beginning. And what we heard from the beginning was the gospel. And in verse 25, John tells us that gospel promise. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And look at it again, this is the promise he made to us. Your translation may say he himself. That's really a good translation of that. You see, John is telling us that Jesus, Jesus himself made this promise. Now why would John be able to say that? Because he's an eyewitness to what happened with Jesus. He was there. If you look back at the beginning of, your, uh, of the letter of 1 John, go all the way back to chapter one, and right at the beginning of that, in verse one, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Did you catch the phrases in there? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which, and have touched with our hands. See, he is an eyewitness. He was there when Jesus was making these promises. Now, this is not hearsay evidence. This is not, well, Jesus said this to somebody else, and this person told me. Anyone that knows a little bit about the law, hearsay evidence isn't it admissible in court. But this isn't the problem here. This would be admissible testimony. John could testify and say, I was there. I heard this. I walked with him. I touched the man. There's many references in there. How about at the Last Supper, where he laid on Jesus' breast? He asked Jesus who it was that was going to betray him. John was right there. But even so, remember what Peter says in 2 Peter 16 through 21. He talks about how he was an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. He's talking about the transfiguration. But what does he say? The prophetic word, the Bible, is more sure. This is an amazing thing. John's eyewitness is a credible source on a human level. But this is inspired scripture. This is the word of God. And Peter tells us that even what he saw and even what John saw is trumped by the Bible because this is God's word. It's not the word of man. It's not the testimony of man. So God has graced us with the ability to read these things and to understand what he's telling us. He's graced us with his word, breathed out by him, the truth, and better than an eyewitness testimony. Well, turn with me to John 17 and let's see what John was referring to. We'll turn to John 17, and we're going to start with verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. See, Jesus is saying in his prayer to the Father, that God has given him the authority. And this is the first part of evaluating a promise. Does he have the authority to make it? Well, Jesus tells us clearly, and John has referred to this. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. See, Jesus is the Lord of creation, the Lord of all flesh. Pastor Ron taught us that and showed that to us in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He has the authority to give eternal life. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, as Pastor Ron showed us, he is the Lord of salvation. And to all whom the Father has given him, all that come to him, all that come to the Father through Jesus, all that the Father has given Jesus, Jesus has the authority to give eternal life to. He has this authority. But John's not the only one that tells us this. If you look back at Matthew chapter 28, right at the end of the book of Matthew. And you know this one, Christ is risen. He's appearing to the disciples. And he says in verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Once again, Jesus is citing his authority to do things, his authority to make promises, his authority to grant life. He's citing it right here. And then if you turn back to Daniel, and that's in the Old Testament right after Ezekiel and before Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Daniel chapter 7. And these are verses Pastor Scott referenced. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, Jesus' dominion is everlasting. His rule, his authority is forever. Only an everlasting God could grant eternal life. Otherwise, how is it eternal? If God's not eternal, if the king is not eternal, and someone replaces him, how can he guarantee then that our life would be eternal? When I was a police chief, I could make a, a decree that on every afternoon we would put an officer downtown to patrol. And I'm no longer police chief. And I have no authority to carry that out because I'm not the police chief. A new police chief changes the decree if he wants. Well, in the same manner, if Christ is not eternal, if his dominion is not everlasting, he couldn't guarantee our eternal life. But we're told right here that he is everlasting. His dominion is everlasting. Now, I want to draw your attention to verse 13 Right at the end of that, it's right at the middle of it, it says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Does that sound familiar to you, son of man? Jesus called himself the son of man many, many times. You first see it in Matthew 8, 40. He refers to himself repeatedly as the son of man. This is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. And it ties right back here to the one who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom an everlasting dominion, this son of man, this Jesus. Now, it's great to have this authority, and it's great to do this, but we have to also recognize that Jesus is God. Remember as our teaching from John 1.1. How's it go? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You see, Jesus is God. Now, some people deny this. This is certainly a problem with Gnosticism. They were denying that Jesus was God. He didn't come in the flesh. He's just spirit. But this Jesus Christ is God. Turn back with me to John. Go to John 5. All too often, we hear that people say that, well, Jesus never said he was God. Really? Jesus never told us while he walked this earth that he was God. Look with me at John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now listen to verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then flip over to John 8:58. Just a couple of pages over. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name of God, Yahweh, the name that God told Moses by whom he is called. When Moses said back in Exodus, what did I tell him your name is? Tell him I am. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what does it say in verse 59? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then one more verse, go to John 10. John 10, starting with verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus left no doubt who he was. He's God. And the Jews recognized this. That's why they wanted to kill him, because they didn't understand, they didn't recognize him as God. And so they sought to kill him. Now the disciples knew that Jesus is God. We hear know the account in Matthew 16, 13 through 16, where Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do people say I am? And they gave him various answers. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And we recall the words of Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter making a bold declaration. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This statement makes Jesus God. And Peter recognized it. And Jesus commended that. Jesus said, that wasn't given to you by flesh and blood. That wasn't something that you thought of yourself. It was the spirit that taught you this. So the disciples knew, the Jews knew, the disciples knew, but you know what? Satan knows that Jesus is God also. Recall in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, that's the temptation of Jesus. The Spirit leads him out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he is tempted by Satan. And Satan tells Jesus, if you are the Son of God, a direct challenge, okay, if you're the son of God, do this. And how did Jesus respond? He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Nowhere in this text do we read that Satan refuted this. Satan did not say, yeah, but you're not God. Satan knows that Jesus is God. So Jesus declared it. The Jews protested it. The disciples recognized it. And Satan was rebuked because of it. So I ask you, how about you? Do you believe that Jesus is God? See, we see that Jesus has the authority to make the promise of eternal life. 
Now, it's great to have that authority. It's great to have authority to promise something. But to keep a promise, you have to have the ability to do so. And that's the second point. Authority and now ability. And this is the how. How he can keep the promise he has made. How can Jesus do this? Well, to promise eternal life, as we said before, Jesus must be eternal. Romans 1.20 tells us that God's eternal power is among his invisible attributes. We know that Jesus is God and his eternal power, invisible attribute, it's right there. Romans 16.20 tells us that the command of the eternal God, so we see another eternality. Ephesians 3.11 speaks of the eternal purpose of God. Eternality is worn, or I'm sorry, woven right through all of these passages. God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. So that's one of the areas of his ability to do this. But what do we really mean when we say eternal? Well, Scott referenced this a couple weeks ago. And we find these in Revelation 1.8, Revelation 21.6. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. You have everything contained therein. Think of our dictionary, all the words that we have, starting with A all the way through Z, and all the words right in the middle. It's everything. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He says he, he is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Present, past, future. He's the beginning and the end. The first and the last. And we find the same thoughts in Isaiah 41 and 44. There is no other God beside him. He is the only God. There won't be any more gods. Now, I don't know about you, but eternality is a tough concept for me to grasp. I can get eternal future. I, I, I get that. I understand that. I mean, just time keeps going on and on and on. And, and, and you feel that way, too. If you're a student in class, sometimes it's okay, when will this class end? This thing's going on forever. If you're at a bad movie with your wife, this thing's going on forever. If my wife's at a, at a bad movie with me, this thing's going on forever. This sermon is going on forever, non. I can grasp eternity forward, but I can't grasp eternity backward. I can't grasp something before the beginning. I can't grasp something that goes that way forever. You see, we're bound by time. Time is a creation of God, and we're bound by it. God isn't. God has no beginning. He has no end. There was nothing before him. He doesn't end. There's nothing after him. There's not any waiting for this God to pass and another God to show up. This is who he is. And it's a marvelous thing to think about an eternal God who created everything out of nothing, who always was and always will be. Now that's ability to do something. He'll always be around. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You see, to promise eternal life, he has to be powerful enough to overcome anything or anyone. Because if there's someone more powerful 
If there's a force stronger, then how can he promise, how can he carry out eternal life? So he has to be all-powerful. Matthew 19, 26 says, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. There's a term called omnipotence, all-powerful. God is all-powerful. We know that Jesus created and sustains all things. We can go back to Colossians, which is the passage that Ron taught us out of last week. And going to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Let me remind you of these. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Hebrews 2.10 says, through him all things exist, all things. John 1.3 says, all things were made through him. And Hebrews 11.3, the universe was made by the word of God. Imagine speaking something into existence. He didn't have something, he didn't have some dusts or some gases swirling around. He said, let there be light. Creating light in darkness out of nothing, just speaking it into existence. Perhaps one of the best evidences of God's glory to create light. How do you create light in darkness unless you're God? Out of nothing. Everything that's on this earth was spoken into existence. And that's an amazing thing to think about. He didn't need any raw materials. This is why the evolution and Big Bang, none of these things hold up. Because they presume the existence of something. There was nothing. And God said, let there be. And it was created. And this is Jesus who did this. Now, he's God. He's eternal, and he's got this power. But to give eternal life, you have to be able to give life. You have to be able to give life to give eternal life. Well, listen to Genesis 2, 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Where did life come from? It came from God. It came from Jesus the creator who breathed life into this dust. Have you ever breathed on dust? What happens when you breathe on dust? It just goes away. But God, through his power, held this dust together, and he breathed life into this dust. He's able to give life. Job 33, 4 says, the breath of life, or the breath of God gives life. Psalm 36, 9 tells us, within God is the fountain of life. John 5, 26, Jesus has life within himself. You see, he gives life. You can't give eternal life if you can't give life. And he gives life. 
Now to carry out, to have the ability to carry out a promise, you also must be faithful, reliable, and you must be trustworthy. It's great to make a promise and have the ability to do it, but are you a man of your word? Will you do what you say you're going to do if you make a promise? Well, Hebrews 6.18 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. God can't lie. So if he makes a promise, he keeps it. Otherwise, he's a liar, and then he wouldn't be God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God. Think back to the covenants. All the promises. I think one of the ones that's most comforting to me is Numbers 23.19. God is not a man. He does not lie or change his mind. How many times have you heard that as an excuse for a promise? Ah, I changed my mind. I didn't really want to go change that light bulb. Did my wife rely on me next time I say I'm going to go change the light bulb? He doesn't lie and he doesn't change his mind. In fact, God does not change. Malachi 3.6. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He's not going to mutate into a mean God. He's not going to mutate into something else. He's not going to change who he is, his attributes, his character, his essence. He is always God and he's eternal. Exodus 34.6 says God is faithful. And that means he will keep his promises. So Jesus, the eternal God, the creator, he's the sustainer of life, he's unchanging, and he's faithful. He can and he will carry out his promises. And he'll carry out this promise. So I ask you, do you trust Jesus when he makes a promise of eternal life? Do you trust him? Well, it's great to have the authority and the ability, but we need to understand what is this promise that he makes? He's making a promise of eternal life. This is the activity, the nature of the promise. This is point three. Look back again with me one more time at 1 John. 1 John 2.25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Pretty simple, pretty in your face. Not, eh, maybe some life, maybe you can live forever here and here. Eternal life. So we need to understand, what is this eternal life that he promises? What's he promising to us? Well, the definition of eternal is everlasting, of indefinite duration and never-ending. It just keeps going and going and going. But you see, there's more to eternal life than just a never-ending life. It's great to live forever, but what's the quality of that life? What's that mean when you're going to live forever? I'd want to know more about this because maybe I don't want this. Am I going to be in pain? Am I going to be suffering? Am I going to be stuck somewhere I don't want to be stuck? What does that mean? Well, there's a number of points about eternal life. The first one is we're saved from the wrath of God. All too often, we don't want to talk about God's wrath. Scott mentioned it. There's, there's the judge and the Savior. And we will all face Jesus as one or the other. He's either going to be our judge or he's going to be our Savior. You see, there's a statement out there that says, all paths lead to God. And you know, I agree with that. All, all roads lead to God. All paths lead to God. All religions lead to God. The important thing to remember is all but one of them end in judgment. There's only one that ends in eternal life. 
All those other paths that go to, jo- go to God, they end in his judgment. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And Romans 8.1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, forgiveness of our sins through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we no longer stand condemned. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from that judgment. But that's not all. Eternal life is a unique quality of life. John 17 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing God. Does that sound familiar? If you hearken back to when we talked about the covenants, remember the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 34 says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. They shall all know me. Do you know God? Oh, you can think you do, maybe with some head knowledge. You know, I, I study God. I, I, I know that he's in heaven, and I, I know he's omnipotent, and I know he's omniscient, and uh, yeah, I know all these things. Now, you don't know God. Because this refers to an experiential sense. This is knowing God, living with God, following his commands, loving God, having a relationship with him, that you can rely on him. That he is the one who lifts you up. He's the one that bears your burdens. You see, this life is now present for us. We have our strength in God because we know God. Eternal life refers to rest also. A rest in the Lord. Hebrews 4 talks about this. Talks about no more having to labor for righteousness that pleases God. Think about that. We're free from trying to have to earn our way to heaven. Gotta be perfect, gotta mark up those brownie points. Gotta be the perfect husband, gotta be the perfect wife, gotta be the perfect son or daughter, gotta be the perfect employee. What a burden. That's what the Pharisees were putting on people. Keep the law, keep the law to this degree. Jesus condemned that. You see, keeping the law, earning your way to heaven doesn't work. You can't do it. And God's law shows us this. God's law was meant to convict us of our sin. So in God's rest, we have no fear of that anymore. We don't have to labor for the righteousness that pleases God. So I implore you today, put down your burdens. Put down this, I have to be perfect. Put down this, I have to strive and and I can't mess up. That's legalism. That's trying to earn salvation and you can't earn salvation. It's a gift of God. Well, eternal life means no more sin. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, a stone heart has no feeling. A stone heart is cold. Nothing comes from stone. Stone doesn't generate heat. Have you ever tried to just take a stone and generate heat from stone? Hold a stone in your hand. Go try that this December or January. Pick up a stone and see how much warmth a stone gives you. But God promises a new heart, a heart of flesh, one that's beating, 
There's blood coursing through it. There's life in this heart. And he puts his spirit within us and causes us to walk in his statutes. No longer are we slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. Because it's not our ability to follow God. It's his ability through us. It's his ability through the spirit to do that. Working in us to follow him. That doesn't mean that we won't have any sin while we walk on this earth. Paul quickly dispenses with that. But the difference is we don't want to sin. We grieve over our sin. We worry over our sin. We run back to God. We confess it. We repent of it. And this is the power the Spirit gives us. And then there's no more pain and suffering in eternal life. I'm going to go back to Revelation all the way back towards the end of the book. In Revelation 21, starting with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen here, verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, the corruption wrought by sin is gone and there's no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more death. And God will dwell with his people, which is the next point, life in the presence of God. Eternal life is life in the presence of God. John 14, two and three says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Being with Jesus, eternal life in the presence of God, regularly, all the time, forever. And there's a joy connected with this. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. And it's a secure life. Our eternal life in Jesus Christ is secure. John 10, 27 through 30 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Nothing, nothing can take away our salvation. Nobody, no thing can do that. It's right here. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you know that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you have true salvation, you can't cause yourself to lose your salvation? Too many people think that. Oh, I've sinned, now God's mad at me, I guess I'm not saved anymore. No, what's your heart? Do you repent of that? Have you confessed that? Have you turned from that? You see, you can't take away the salvation God gave you, otherwise you're trumping God. You're just saying now that I'm more powerful than God because you gave it to me, I take it away. That's not the omnipotent God we know. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. Let's look at the opposite real quick, the opposite of eternal wrath. I'm sorry, the opposite of eternal life. First is the wrath of God. Scott mentioned this. And in Colossians 3, 6, we know it's coming. We may not see all of it today. We may see part of it. 
but it's coming. And Romans 2.5 says the day of God's wrath is when his judgment will be revealed. That judgment is coming. That day of wrath is coming. You can run, but you can't hide. The opposite of eternal life is separation from God. In Luke 13, starting with verse 22, it says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Think on this for a moment. We ate and drank in your presence. Are you here this morning and you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Oh, you're here in God's presence. You may take communion because we pass around communion and you think you ought to take it, it's, it's, it's nice, you get a little drink and a little cracker and you're, you're good. But if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. And on the last day, Jesus will say, depart from me, all you workers of evil, I don't know you. Going to church doesn't save you. Taking part in rituals doesn't save you. You're saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. The opposite of eternal life means torment, pain, and suffering. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 14, 11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Eternal. This is not annihilation. There are some that teach annihilation. At the end day, there's judgment, and then poof, you're gone. You don't feel anything, you're gone. You just cease to exist. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we will be living forever or we will be suffering forever. In that place, it's dark. One of the, I, I, like, I like one of the songs we sang up here. talked about some of these elements. Darkness. In 2 Peter 2.17 and Jude 13, talks about the gloom of utter darkness. In the NASB, it says black darkness. It's dark. God isn't there. The light isn't there. So you think you're gonna stand around looking at everybody and going, yeah, hey, you're here and you're here and hey, let's have a party. It doesn't work that way. You're in pain, you're in torment, you're in suffering and you're in the dark. Think about being in the dark. That was one of the plagues that God put on Egypt. Darkness, so dark they couldn't see their hands in front of them. All they could do is lay there. Now imagine darkness so great, all you can do is lay there and suffer in pain forever. And then there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, 41 to 43, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, not the party atmosphere. Gnashing teeth, grinding. We gnash our teeth when we're mad at somebody. We gnash our teeth out of anger. We also gnash our teeth out of pain. But listen to the contrast right away in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this promise of eternal life, it's rest, 
It's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, and there's joy. And this is our hope. This is the hope that we have. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All those elements are in there, right there in those verses. You see, without Christ, there's no hope. There's only wrath and torment and suffering and darkness. So I ask you, you who have ears, are you hearing? Let's conclude all this. We're gonna conclude the series now. Who is Jesus? Well, if you've been following along these last three weeks, you know that he is the one by whom all nations are blessed, and this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the one who kept the law perfectly in our behalf. This is the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. This is the Messiah who will return to Israel in fulfillment of the Palestinian covenant. He's the fulfillment of the new covenant and it's sealed by his blood. He's the lion and the lamb, the judge and the savior, the king of kings. He's the Lord of creation, the Lord of salvation, the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of all. And he is the one who promises eternal life. This Jesus, he promises eternal life. Hebrews 5.9 says he is the source of eternal salvation. And Acts 4.12 says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I ask you, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Is he your Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome, mind-boggling, overwhelming thought that Jesus, God and man, the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lion and Lamb, the Judge and Savior, the Creator, the fulfillment of your promises that he grants us eternal life. It is through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he has the authority to grant it. He has the ability to grant it. And we know what eternal life is. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who haven't placed their faith in Christ. Father, I pray that they come to salvation. Father, call them, bring them in. Father, help them to know the peace, the comfort, the joy. Their life is hidden with Jesus the one who promises eternal life. Father, bless us today. Bless us as we go. Father, keep these words on our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.